Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the home of Common Sense, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. So far, so good this morning. The government doesn't appear to have taken any of my money overnight, despite Rishi Sunak's pledge yesterday that we're all going to have to pay for all the borrowing he's done thanks to COVID. That's right. Our debt is apparently 100% of what the GDP is now. I'm not absolutely certain what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Today, it is the turn of Home Secretary Priti Patel, who's going to be setting out her plans for stopping those morons from Insulate Britain from disrupting traffic and annoying communities. There are plans afoot to ban them from travelling anywhere if they continue to repeatedly offend. After what happened to them yesterday on Wandsworth Bridge, it appears that this morning they're not out and about, uh, so maybe they're taking stock. Maybe they don't like the idea of getting run over uh, and pulled out of the way uh, by Her Majesty's uh, populace, because basically we're not waiting around for the police anymore. If you come to London, guys, I'm afraid you're going to have to be ready for a bit of a dust-up. Because in London, people mean business. In London, people go to work. In London, people want to make money in order to pay for the things that they like in life. What they don't want is a load of hippies sitting around uh, disrupting the traffic. It's as simple as that. Up first, though, we're talking about the new Britain, the one that appears to be emerging post-COVID. And after all the various crises that we've been dealing with recently, Chris Loder MP joins us with a brand new thought process. He thinks it would actually be good for the country in the long term if all of our logistics chains and our uh, supply chains actually collapsed. I'll be asking him exactly what that means. We're just getting over the petrol shortage. Now apparently there's a shortage of butchers and so all the pigs that were going to be slaughtered for food are now going to be slaughtered. I don't know if I'm the only one that's got a problem with this. So you haven't got enough people to kill the pigs and so you're going to kill the pigs. See if you can explain that one for me. Uh, so go figure. With the news that only 27 fuel tanker drivers have applied to work in the UK from the European Union, it doesn't look as though that is going to be the answer either. 03444991000. Coming up, we're joined by Professor Carol Sikora looking ahead to Sajid Javid's speech later on at the party conference, trying to make the NHS more accountable by sacking bosses if they don't cut hospital waiting lists. Finally, a step in the right direction. Instead of just throwing money at it, they're going to be accountable. Thank goodness. And Laura Dodsworth is here as well with her take on the government's winter plans for COVID. She's not buying them. She says, why do you need a plan A and a plan B unless you're going to end up going with plan B? 03444991000. We'll be asking what on earth happened at Facebook yesterday when their entire multi-platform media empire was offline for more than six hours. Let's hope 
it wasn't Nick Clegg's fault. And here's a little one for you. If you've ever done anything really, really terrible at work, we'd like you to confess it to us now. Tell us uh, if it was you that switched off all the lights that time. 0344 499 1000. And we'll be finding out just why the cladding scandal has still not been fixed more than four years after Grenfell. Um, a man committed suicide uh, recently and it was put down to the fact that he was overextended on some apartments that he had bought because they had to go to, to the cladding police to make sure that they were safe for people to live in. Kevin O'Sullivan's here as well ahead of his big show tonight at 7pm. He'll bring us up to date with the latest from Strictly. And LaDonna Harvey is here as well from the US of A. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, we are heading up to Manchester to catch up with Chris Loder, Conservative MP for West Dorset, who made a fascinating speech at a fringe event the other day uh, in which he basically started talking about how good it would be in the long run for the country if some of our logistical chains of supply actually collapsed. We're going to find out why he said that. Chris, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Mike. How are you today? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I find that, uh, that, that I, I like to find sort of refreshing takes on, on various different parts of, uh, of our economy. And I've been saying for quite a long time, Chris, that I think we expect too much, we buy too much. And quite frankly, an awful lot of the stuff that we um, go out and worry about being short of is actually not necessary. Yeah, I agree with you, Mike. I mean, I'm a farmer's son. Uh, West Dorset, the M- uh, where I'm the MP for, is my home as well. My mum and dad are farmers, and I've seen some of the real downsides of some of these supply chains of how they've affected farmers over the years. And the debate on um, Sunday that I uh, participated in mm. was about the future of English farming. And at, at that event, I said that actually it could very well be in our mid- and long-term interests that the supply chains do go through turbulence to reset them because they don't work. And the reason I don't think they work is because the supermarkets have taken massive advantage out of the supply chain network. They've centralised everything. They've taken away the resilience. They've taken away the local uh, ability to have a supply chain network uh, in favour of their profits. Now, Tesco, for example, so far this year has more than £700 million profit. And last year, it was even more than that. So, you know, what, I'm, what I was saying in, in terms of generating the debate here at the party conference in Manchester is that actually a lot of the difficulties that we're seeing today, we didn't ought to think it's down to Brexit because it's not down to Brexit. What it's down to, in my opinion, is two things. Number one, the supermarkets taking advantage uh, of the situation, taking advantage of farmers and so on. And then we've got to look at HGV drivers because HGV drivers have been treated really badly over the years they've been paid rock bottom they've had their facilities just awful facilities they don't get any support for those kind of things and it's about time that we actually pay proper money and these organizations like tesco's and all the other uh, big companies you know bp and others they pay their lorry drivers proper money a fair day's work a fair day's pay for a fair day's work is what i think is appropriate and it's about time we reset it and that's why i wanted to trigger this debate over the last few days yeah and I think you're absolutely right to do so as well, because when I was talking to some people about this last night, they were like, what are you, coming, uh, becoming some kind of communist? What, you don't want people to be able to have choice in, in what they buy. I feel as though we are very much... Um, That's the opposite. Well, exactly. I feel like we're very much at the behest of, of all of these huge global marketing and supermarket chains, because they control You are 100% everything. right, Mike. Yeah. And I mean, 100% look at, look right. at the dairy what farmers, right, who don't get paid a fair amount of money for their milk. 
I mean, so the situation we see with some supermarkets, this is how ruthless some of these supermarkets are, okay? Sainsbury's in my constituency, or Sainsbury's, the, the national supermarket, I have farmers in my constituency who provide them with milk. Mm. They've been threatened with their contracts being torn up if they do not sell to Sainsbury's a proportion of their calves. Now that is absolutely disgraceful and that alone is a brilliant example of how ruthlessly predatory yeah. some of these supermarkets are and what they've done is they prioritize profit over resilience and what's happened now is it's actually come back to bite them properly bite them and it's no good them saying it's the government's fault it's no good saying it's brexit's fault because it's not they pay rock bottom prices for their hgv drivers they have taken advantage of the market for so long they have forced farmers to accept prices do you know a lot of the farmers they have to actually provide their accounts to uh, uh, Sainsbury's and to the other supermarkets in order to get a deal so, so there's no rigor room at all so so they have they have taken advantage of this situation so badly unfortunately it's come to bite them on the ass a bit and now I think it's proper that we actually drill into that we say actually enough's enough we need to have a proper resilient supply chain we need to make it back, back local I mean take milk for example as I said milk comes from the farm it's transported how many miles to a dairy it then goes to be packaged and processed then a distribution plant and then back to the supermarket well what, what why is that necessary that's not environmentally friendly to start with mm. um, I don't know if um, you know likes of Extinction Rebellion and others would care to share that view rather than to try and um, block ambulances getting to work uh, yeah. get getting to hospital yeah. um, but rather than going from the farm to the local supermarket or the local shop that's the situation we've got and I think we need to change that yes I think you're absolutely right is it is it feasible in this day and age Chris do you think that, that you could have a more localized distribution sort of situation i.e if there was to be a collapse of the supply chain what would you what would you prefer to see coming in its place I mean, if you like we, we yeah we've just got to be clear i mean depending on which paper you read it's been reported differently what i've said i've not advocated a collapse of the supply chain right. what i've said is that actually it could be in our mid to long term interest if there's disruption in the supply chain now and we should look to fix it on the back of it mm. so um, do i believe that more local supply chains can happen yes i do but i think what's got to happen is that if these if these great big commercial uh, organisations like supermarkets and petrol providers and all that kind of thing can't sort it out, then the government should intervene. I don't want the government to intervene. I want competition. I want more competition. People said to me, I was on the radio this morning with another station and I had some uh, someone on there saying, oh, well, you're against competition. No, I'm not. I want more competition. Yeah. That's why I want it to be more local. So the local shops on the high street can compete rather than being screwed down by a lot of these supermarkets. Mm. Oh, absolutely right. Well, I mean, these supermarkets have outlawed competition, haven't they? Because, as you say, if you, if you don't work with them, they crush you. And you're either you know, having to take their they terms yeah. uh, or you don't have a business. They are ruthlessly predatory, and I've seen it firsthand. I mean, my mum and dad are beef farmers mm. down in Dorset, and uh, we've got a small beef farm. Um, you know, in actual fact, beef prices uh, have gone up um, in recent times since we've left the European Union, and we, they will continue to do so. And over the coming weeks, I'm looking to uh, secure that even further with trying to get a grip of live animal exports and some other things that you'll see and read about over the next few weeks. But actually, as far as I'm concerned, the supermarkets, they don't give proper consumer choice. They don't label the 
uh, goods in their shops, especially fresh goods, as to how many miles they've come from uh, 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 and, and how they've been slaughtered in some cases. And they, they just go to crush the small organisations that don't necessarily do exactly the same things that they want them to. And I think time's come for that to be called out. That's what I'm doing. And I hope we can have a proper debate about localising those supply chains because localising them makes them more resilient. Because if one has trouble, you can switch to another one quite quickly. Mm. It is all about a decision of profit versus resilience. It's been totally wrong some of these organisations to say it's the government's fault. It's not. It's their mm. fault. They don't pay the HGV drivers proper money and they've screwed down their suppliers. They have a hugely centralised supply chain and it's about time we turn that around. We localise things. It's better for the environment. The mileage goes down. And that's just one of many uh, positive things about it and I look forward to championing that cause yes. over the coming months. Well listen you'll certainly have my support for it because there are so many pluses in my view including the ones you've just mentioned but but also not only is it is it more environmentally friendly it's also uh, taking more traffic off the roads long term as well and the roads in this country are woefully exactly, yeah. uh, overburdened it seems to me but let me ask you this yeah. Chris because we know for example that uh, the HGV business and the haulage business has been uh, woefully badly run for a long time and the reason why uh, there are supposedly shortages of, of drivers is nothing to do with the fact that you know uh, everybody's gone back to the eu it's to do with the fact that you know prices have gone up a bit uh, for the for the drivers themselves the dvla is, is making it incredibly difficult for people to get their licenses renewed uh, we've got this eu yep. qualification that people have to take you know there's all sorts of issues but i blame the haulage business itself for underpaying the drivers you know and now that we've supposedly asked for them to come back Apparently only 27 of them have actually bothered to apply. So that's clearly not the answer, is it? Yes, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, to be honest, I wasn't sure it was the right thing for the government to do to offer a visa option for um, Europeans to come back, but they did it and they thought it was the right thing to do. But I read in the papers this morning only 27 have actually applied for yeah. that. Now, that, in my mind, tells me there's something much more fundamental that's not right. Um, there's some HGV drivers that live in my constituency. They've been kind enough to write to me over the last few weeks mm. and share with me their insights as to how they found industry, which they're not in, or at least some of them aren't in now. And they tell me that their conditions have been awful. They've been treated really badly. They're paid rock bottom pay. You know, if they've got to travel across the country, that means they've basically got to sleep in their cab. And if they haven't got a decent lorry, then that's not very comfortable. And to be honest with you, where do you go to the toilet if you've got to stop somewhere? Right. You know, it, it, we, we, we've really underestimated. I think we've taken advantage, frankly, of a lot of decent, hard-working HGV drivers mm. across the country. And it's about time they were given the respect they were due. Because we can see now, more than probably any time we've seen in recent, uh, recent years, that actually the HGV driving network is a pretty important, fundamentally important component to our national infrastructure. They haven't been given the... Um, uh, the priority they should have done. If I'm honest with you, I don't think the Road Haulage Association does them any favours either. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm on the Transport Select Committee, often talk to um, uh, people who have uh, interest in this area. I think fundamentally, cut out all the noise. There's two things we've got to do. We've got to look after HGV drivers. We've got to pay proper money because it's about fair day's pay for a fair day's work, you know. Um, this, all this uh, nonsense about screwing them down, that has to be gone. That's mm. out the window. And it's about relocalising those supply chains, like I told you earlier on. 
Uh, Rishi Sunak yesterday, Chris, talked about how we're going to have to pay uh, for the, all the borrowing that we've been doing during the pandemic. There will be a price to pay. What do you see as the kind of relationship between paying people a fair wage and not charging consumers too much money? Because obviously there's a balance there, isn't there? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, but with localising the supply chain, in my opinion, so te- sorry to use milk again, but it's such a brilliant example. Mm. So people keep telling me, I mean, I've, I've found um, I found lots of love on Twitter over the last uh, few days. Um, hashtag GTTO. That's unusual. Uh, I'm bombarded with, isn't it? Yeah, and there's another one, hashtag, is it FBPE? Yes. Or whatever it is. Yeah. Anyway, my, my mate Lee Anderson tells me that Twitter's a great thing and says I should have a <laughs> reflection moment about that. Yeah. Um, however... Um, you know what? What we've um, you know what we've started to see is that you know this whole issue about um, the, the country's finances are now back in proper uh, the proper limelight, proper discussion. Mm. Um, and when I was talking about milk just then, um, actually, um, milk locally produced, sold locally, is cheaper than having it carted over the other side of the country, put in a plas- plastic carton and then brought all the way back. Mm. Um, so, for example, you know, two pints of milk I can buy in the local... When I say the local supermarket, I mean the local, local supermarket, mm. not a chain, yeah. um, for 75p. Right. If I go down, the, go down the road to um, Sainsbury's or wherever, £1.15. So mm. um, this whole thing about localism that's more expensive, if you go in your local shops, I don't buy it um, a- at all. And I'm afraid it's lazy uh, uh, on the part of those who have political arguments uh, against it. But I I, I know full well some people have concerns about that. I know that they're, you know, quite rightly so in this uh, in this climate. Um, We've got to basically we've got to watch what we spend and we've got to watch what we do with our money. Personally, I think, um, you know, I think the the government has been very, um, very good and very, uh, very generous to a lot of people to help them get through this period. I think that's an important thing to do. But we've also got to bear in mind a lot of those, um, a lot of people as well have really struggled during this time. And we've got a commitment to help them as well as we have anybody else. And I think that now we've really got to make sure that, you know, localising things means more jobs. I mean, down in West Dorset, I've got huge vacancy lists. Loads of companies come to tell me and say, Chris, we've got jobs, but we can't fill them. We can't fill them. We can't fill them. Mm. And they're decent jobs. Um, uh, we can't, the employment is there. The work is there. The pay is now better than it was, and I think we're in a, a, a lot better situation to ride through this bumpy period. Okay. Chris, stay where you are, if you wouldn't mind. We've just got a couple more questions to ask you about the conference and how it's going itself, also about the whole pig farming crisis that we're about to supposedly enter as well. Chris Loder, MP for West Dorset, making a lot of sense this morning. I'd like to hear your view as well, though, because he says, wouldn't it be better, actually, if we were able to remove the power the supermarkets have over farmers, over local dairies, over the way that food is distributed, distributed around this country because they are literally a monopoly and they are putting pressure on ordinary working people in this country not just with the prices they charge but also with what they pay suppliers the independent republic of mike gray on talk radio welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk radio chris loder's here conservative mp for west dorset he's up in manchester at the tory party conference you're getting a lot of love from my listeners chris at the moment saying that you're talking a great deal of sense uh, and you're a proper conservative which has got to be good news uh, for some of those people up there who are being accused well, of not that, being as conservative that, as they should be that. well that's what you get from somebody who used to be uh, oh i didn't go to university see i was born and raised on the farm <laughs> Uh, start work for the railways when we had BSE and foot and mouth and that sort of 
bump in the 90s was yes. pretty, pretty horrible for mum and dad. Um, the future in the farm was a bit bleak, so I left and went to work for the railways, sweeping the platforms, selling train tickets. I was yeah. a train guard for a little while. Do you know, I even joined the RMT, trade union. Can you oh, believe goodness that? Me. Um, goodness me. But then... Uh, but I soon, I soon left them when they started messing about it with strikes and stuff. Yeah, absolutely they, uh, right. Lost away a little bit, I think. But, um, yeah, no, well, thanks very much for the compliment. No, thanks listen, well, here's an interesting point. Comments. I'm sorry, I can't see him. Here's an interesting point from Bernard on Twitter. He says, I'm a UK board game manufacturer. A few years ago, Tesco wanted me to pay them £70,000 for them to stock my game. And then it would be on a sale or return basis. Yep. No small business can operate like that. that so they obviously do this that, kind of thing with that everyone. That is exactly... That is exactly the tactics that it's time we called out. They are absolutely despicable. And uh, I'm afraid the, the consumer doesn't see that in the same way. No. You, know, they, you know, our small independent shops, the high streets, basically they've really been screwed by a lot of these supermarkets. They have these enormous, enormous stores part, uh, built on the outskirts of town. They hoover the life out of the town. I mean... Mm. Um, I'm fortunate and a lot of my towns and my constituency are quite good but um, you know Yeovil for example brilliant example you've got uh, you've got a huge Tesco's you've got a huge Morrison's you've got a huge Asda and the town centre is dead right. it's a real shame because Yeovil used to be a really lovely town well that's the thing and also we saw the news last week I think it was that Morrison's has now been bought by some massive giant US equity fund yeah. and you know they're not interested in the populace of Britain they're not interested in how uh, they serve their customers no, they're, not. they're simply churning the dollar I mean, I remember when Morrison's used to be Sainsbury's yeah. back in the day. I don't know if you... I uh, beg your pardon, used to be Safeway. It used to be Safeway, uh, yes. Safeway right. back in the day. I never liked it and, then either. And they were really... <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say, I thought Safeway back in the day was uh, a decent supermarket. Mm. You know, they, they had a lot of local supplies. They used to stock a lot of local things. Um, we used to go shopping there on a Friday every day after uh, every week after the cattle market. Um, and uh, you know, I thought they were good. Morrison's, of course, took them over, and I think, in fairness to Morrison's, they haven't done a bad job either. Mm. But what we're seeing now with Morrison's, with his takeover, is the same that we're seeing with all these great big supermarkets. You know, Asda, of course, was bought over by Walmart, wasn't mm. it, a few years yes. ago? Um, we're seeing that again, and it worries. It really worries me that actually there is more of the same on the way, which is one of the reasons why I've said what I have done mm. over the last few days, because I think it's about time about time we challenge it this this supermarket dominance has got to stop they are contributing maybe more than contributing causing in some ways these difficulties that we're seeing across the country with the supply chain because what's happening is their commercial predatory has come back to bite them hard mm. and now they're going oh my god they put out all the pr bods and they said oh point that way to the government point that way to brexit and whatever else it's all nonsense i'm afraid yes let me ask you one final question chris about the pig farming crisis that we are supposedly about to uh, enter and experience because mm. I, my belief would be and i could be wrong about this that the farming community has got it wrong as well because they've obviously been paying cheap labour from Eastern Europe uh, to do the butchering. Those guys are no longer around and now they're saying they haven't got any butchers. Well, they yeah. should have seen that coming, shouldn't they? Well, um, yeah, so there's two things to talk about here. The first is the state of play with the abattoirs, mm. OK? So the abattoirs have been in the same situation as a lot of the supermarkets and that they've been bought up by great big chains or big owning groups. Right. And they've had the same sort of issues that we've experienced. So this is another example where I'm afraid big chains have looked to make lots of money 
at the expense of local people working because they've invariably had labour from other parts of the UK or even further afield. Mm. And now, of course, it's come back to buy. I mean, I've got um, a local abattoir in my constituency that's been shut for months, mm. um, partly uh, because of this. Um, but I, you know, the thing that really irritates me about this argument is that every time, and it's not just the pig farmers, well, so, no, it's not all the pig, it's some of the pig farmers, let's just be clear. That's the trouble when we talk about these things. We brand everybody as, you know, in the farm mm. industry as the farmers. That's not true. You've got a few pig farmers stood outside who have this opinion. And on the headline, of course, is about uh, immigrant labour allowing people back in the UK um, uh, to, to work for them. Now, for me, um, their headline up here, I don't know if you see it uh, uh, on the telly or in the papers, but the headline up here is that basically um, we need to let more people back in to work here from um, other parts of the EU. Yeah. And if we don't do it, basically kids, uh, pigs are going to have to be killed on the farm. Um, I think that's a terrible thing um, to threaten. I think, I think I've got to be really careful with this argument because at, at, actually... I think it goes down a bit of a rabbit hole which they could get stuck in. Yeah. I mean, do you mean to tell me, really, that if there's a couple of weeks delay in uh, the abattoir food processing uh, uh, area, that they're going to have to kill pigs on their own farm? I mean, I, that sounds pretty disgusting to me. Now, I'm not, I'm, you know, I've not been involved with pig farming. Um, I'm not an expert in it, I have to say. So I might be proven wrong, and I'm sure there'll be a few people on the on the world of Twitter that will will say that in mm. the in the next uh, few hours, but this kind of constant threat that you need immigrant labour to solve the issue it's the same that we've seen from the National Farmers Union and others over the last uh, uh, over the last days and weeks. Um, I think that argument is running a bit thin now, and I'm afraid we need to actually understand what really has been going on. Um, yes, there's been a pay issue. I'm certain of that. But the whole farming debate, I mean, you know, I understand that the NFU, for example, called yesterday for a return to the BPS system, which was the old sort of EU model, really, of, um, of uh, giving financial support to farmers. Mm. The smallest farmers, OK, the smallest farmers, the 20% of farmers, OK, get just 2% of that BPS that's not fair. Mm. But the largest farmers get more than half of it. You know, so, so you know, there's a whole debate to be had about that. There's a whole debate about the future of farming, which is still going on, I have to say. But when it comes to this issue that um, has been presented outside with the pig farmers, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not wholly bought on it. I think it's a bit of a nasty threat to say, you know what, if you don't allow immigrant labour, we're yeah. going to start slaughtering pigs on a farm. I think it's a pretty disgusting sort of threat. And as a farmer's son, actually, I would tell them, actually, you know what, guys, you need to think a bit differently about your strategy to get the message across to us because no one's been in touch with me. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, as I said, a farmer's son, very agricultural constituency, got some pig farmers. No one's told me that that's an issue. So until I start to hear that from my local farm, I'm just taking a pinch of salt with mm. what's going on outside. But okay. the, com the conference up here, Mike, I don't know if you've got the vibe, is, um, is pretty good. I quite, yeah. uh, quite like it. I mean, this is my, I'm getting my maiden voyage with you on the, um, on the yes, talk radio. Well, I think, you, you before, I think it'll be the first of many because uh, I think a lot of people are very much enjoying what you're having to say. So we've got to run, though, because we're late for the news. Chris, good to talk to you. We will definitely be talking to you again because you do make an awful lot of sense. Chris Loder, why has he never been on before? Why have we never found this man? He's clearly somebody with a great future in the Tory party. He's clearly somebody who knows Britain and he knows his onions as well.
as his farming. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, let's talk a little bit about some of those media platforms that we are also now reliant upon. Yesterday, Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram, which are all owned effectively by Facebook, they're all on the same platform. They all went down for about six hours. It's an absolutely incredible story. Let's talk to Will Geddes, uh, our man of the moment, who's our security expert here at Talk Radio, because I was assured, or I was absolutely certain yesterday, that there must have been some kind of hacking problem, but uh, Facebook say not. Will, a very good morning to you. And a very good morning to you, Commander. Yeah, listen, incredible stuff yesterday. I mean, I don't know how people were getting along with each other without any Instagram pictures to post and without any WhatsApp groups to write rude messages in. Um, You know, um, incredible uh, sort of... I'm trying to think of the right word which doesn't involve swearing, but I can't really. But I mean, what a mess. I know. And I think what it emphasises, Mike, is how much control Facebook have over much of our lives or certainly our social and our digital platform lives in terms of the number of different platforms that they control. And when they go down, uh, good old Jack Dorsey at Twitter was enjoying it uh, quite immensely, (laughs) certainly with the various amusing tweets that he was putting out. Well, because Twitter was really the only place that you could communicate, wasn't it? Because nobody could get on Facebook, nobody could get on WhatsApp, um, and nobody knew why. And there was all sorts of conspiracy theories, as you would expect. But, I mean, it is that nightmare, isn't it? Because somebody said to me, is I wonder if it's some guy just stuck a spade in the wrong bit of the ground and cut one of the wires? Because it's almost like that's what happened. Well, I don't think Facebook's really going to tell us exactly what happened. My gut feeling is I think there had to be some kind of human intervention and not necessarily in a accidental way you're talking a company that has tens of thousands of employees they have data centers across the world Uh, and what fundamentally happened was their dns or their domain uh system uh basically like an address book so when you tap in facebook into google or into your browser that then converts into IP address, which is a series of numbers. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, when you tapped in Facebook or you tried to connect from your app or, or from your laptop, um, this went to a blank address book. Mm. So I, I, I will always err on the side of um, suspicion in these kind of things. Yes. And I feel it kind of coincides rather conveniently with the whistleblower as well. Yes, that's an interesting take on it as well, isn't it? And I suppose the question a lot of people will have is, would any of their data be at risk uh, in any way, shape or form? Would there have been a security problem while it was down? Well, I mean, again, depending on what the source of that uh, outage was, again, would depend on whether it was uh, potentially compromising our personal data. But, I mean, Facebook seemed to be doing a pretty awesome job of that on its own without necessarily... Um, you know, handing it out, you know, voluntarily to other people. My my feeling, though, Mike, is it wasn't any kind of state-sponsored attack. It wasn't some malicious external. I think it was something more internal if it was going to be anything. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, as you say, they'll probably never own up to it. But tell us a little bit about this whistleblower story. What's that all about? Well, this is really interesting. This is a woman uh, who has been in the senior management within Facebook, Uh, She's been there for a number of years and she was involved primarily in some of the content management and where she felt dismayed, as one often sees with a disgruntled whistleblower, uh, she felt that uh, Facebook were brushing a number of fairly nefarious activities under the carpet and some of their business practices uh, were certainly somewhat unethical. I mean, one of the fundamentals was that a lot of people that were drawn to Facebook 
would be for controversial content. Mm. And there was content which was either inciting hate or violence or, or was politically misinformation. They were allowing that information to still appear and be propagated across Facebook uh, because it drew people in. People are always going to be intrigued by slightly more, if you like, negative uh, content, sadly. It's not always going to be cat pictures. Um, and, uh, and as a direct result, you know, that draws people by algorithms, obviously, to their advertisements. And, you know, they're a business. And, okay, one can be cynical and say, well, it's a, it's a free platform. You don't pay for it. You don't pay for WhatsApp and you don't pay for, uh, for Instagram. Mm. Uh, however, and they do need to make money. But guiding people towards that. And there were a number of other five, you know, four or five other key issues, such as um, certainly, you know, not dealing with human trafficking, for example, or uh, explicit content which was showing up on Instagram. You know, there were a number of things, Mike. It's going to look, be quite interesting in the revelations coming out. Yeah, absolutely right. Because, of course, famously, they say to us, don't they, or those who, who, who would advise us say, well, basically, you are uh, the content as an individual. So it's not as though you're using them. They're actually using you. Well, exactly. I mean, that, that's one of the things. I mean, we've got to bear in mind we relinquish a certain degree of our privacy by posting stuff online. Mm. It's, uh, it's a bit like sending a very private message on a postcard in the post. You know, yeah. everybody who handles that postcard is going to see the content. Right. However, where this is slightly less nice and less pleasant is actually Facebook directing you as the visitor uh, to certain elements on that website, which really should have been removed or should have been policed far better. Yes, no, quite right. Um, and so do you think, and I was wondering about this last night, that they will now take a view that it's probably best to separate these three gargantuan sort of titans of the media out of each other's way so that if Facebook goes down, it doesn't also take WhatsApp and, and Instagram with it? Well, you know, to be honest, any decent company uh, should have crisis management plans and it should have business interruption plans. So in the event that something goes down, yeah. other parts of the business are siloed, they're protected, and you have those measures to put it back online mm. or bring it back into business. Um, what This is why I'm drawing much more towards uh, some malicious insider than anything else, right. uh, because surely they would have had those systems in place, certainly a company with that amount of capital behind it. Yeah. And I know this is going to sound like a very old fashioned Luddite sort of question, but is there a kind of a finite amount of space, if you like, in the uh, in the Internet, in the sense, is there, you know, something that could overload it, if you like, because now if you consider what we were doing 20 years ago and there was nothing flying around in the air, there was no there was no Wi-Fi, there was no data, there was nothing. I mean, is, is there a finite point for all of that? No, not really. There isn't a finite amount as long as people build more servers, they're upgrading. You know, we see with our own digital TV at home, you know, we're getting faster, you know, hardwired fiber into the streets to give us better internet connections. You look at the internet connections we've got now. We're now on 5G. Mm. Won't be long before 6G comes out. You know, there will always be but that. Not in, but not in Dorset, right? Well, maybe not Dorset, you know. But, you know. <laughs> I mean, I used to go to Dorset quite a bit because I had a friend who had a place down there. And I used to have to walk. It was Corfe Castle. You used to have to walk to the top of the street and hold the phone up in the air to try and get even an email because literally there was nothing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how, how many of us have done that? I mean, I remember there was that great episode in the thick of it where uh, they're offered a retreat yes. in the country and he's standing on a kid's climbing right. frame to try That's and get right. the best reception for his phone. <laughs> it's, I mean, this is the great thing, isn't it? I mean, we'll probably hear more about that this week at Tory Party Conference about the rolling out <laughs> of this fantastic high-speed internet. And it's like, well, it's fine if you're in the middle of London, but I can go 30 miles south into Kent and I can't get a 3G signal. Mike, I've had a better signal in Baghdad than I have in central London sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, listen, Will, good to talk to you. See you soon. Will Geddes there uh, with the lowdown on what he thinks happened to Facebook uh, and Twitter and WhatsApp. Uh, not Twitter, rather, to, to Instagram and WhatsApp. All three on the same platform. Uh, all three uh, absolutely left people bereft yesterday. They were going, what can we do? What can we do? Uh, and as he says, it's more than likely to be some kind of human intervention. It didn't just happen. It's not just an, an error. It's not just something uh, that was an accident, I suspect. But we'll probably never know. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, we're going to talk about something which we don't talk about an awful lot on this show, and perhaps we should talk about it a lot more, and it is the cladding scandal that is currently going on in this country. It was over four years ago that Grenfell Tower uh, had that awful night of fire and death where so many people lost their lives as a result of incredibly dangerous cladding that was on the outside of the building. Since then, of course, the government has issued all sorts of directives to various different people, both in private uh, landlord scenarios and also uh, in high-rise buildings up and down the country which are owned and run by local councils. The problem, however, is that still, as of now, 
nothing really has changed. And people are facing massive, massive bills as a result uh, of the cladding that they are being asked to put on to buildings. And so there was a piece in The Times yesterday, a story written uh, about a, a young man who took his own life as a result of having to be so exposed financially to build and to take off some cladding and to put on new forms of it. We're going to talk now to Professor Susan Bright from the New College at the University of Oxford. She's a campaign supporter of Endow Cladding Scandal. Professor Susan, very good morning. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me on the No, program. not at all. I feel like we shouldn't really um, have waited so long to do this story because, I mean, we've touched upon it a couple of times, but we haven't really looked into it. But a terrible, sad uh, story about this young landlord up in uh, uh, the north of England who basically was exposed to such an expensive um, situation where he was due to have to remove all sorts of cladding because there seem to be no guarantees. There seems to be no safety net for people and, and people are still living in buildings which are unsafe, it would seem. Yeah, so I mean, the I mean, it was a terrible story, but um, there are lots of leaseholders who are in a really, really difficult situation at the moment. They they're, they're living in fear uh, because they're living in buildings that aren't safe, and it's not just a question of cladding. Mm. Um, there are also other problems with these buildings as well that have been discovered. In particular, a failure of compartmentation, which is where it's intended to stop fire spread. Yeah, um, and the consequence for them means that they're unable to sell or mortgage their flats. Um, they do face these really huge bills, not not just to fix the building, um, but but even in the interim for things like um, installing new fire alarms. The insurance costs on these buildings have gone up for some buildings almost 2,000 times um, the initial costs since they've discovered they've had problems. And they're paying for a lot of buildings are also paying for these waking watch patrols that, yeah. that go around 24-7 just to keep an eye on things. Um, so So there is enormous anxiety out there. Um, social media is full of just really deeply harrowing stories mm. of people whose lives uh, are being completely upended and, and they just feel powerless in the situation. Yes. And Tom Mansell, the, the young man in question, who was only 37, um, it was estimated that he faced a bill for about £50,000 uh, for the declanning of just one property. And of course, you know, when people buy into, you know, perhaps the buy to let market, they're trying to make a living for themselves, they're trying to create a business for themselves, perhaps. I mean, there's no way that they could have possibly known that this was going to happen. Yeah, so I mean, pe people have bought these flats in good faith. They, um, I mean, a, an analogy that's often used is that if you buy a toaster, you've got better rights than if you buy a flat. So mm. people are putting their life savings into purchasing these, these homes. Um, and then they discover the uh, problems and they've got effectively no legal redress in the situation. Mm. Um, and, and so and, and it's a true also for people who bought into affordable housing. So shared owners, so people who've only bought part of the value of the property, um, are having to, to pay 100% of the costs of, of fixing it. Um, and, and these bills are completely unaffordable. They really are. And so your group, Endow Cladding Scandal, has written to Michael Gove, who's the new housing secretary now, amongst a few other things. Um, has he replied? What are you hoping to get from him? Yeah, so I ought to say I'm not, I'm not a member of that group as such. I'm, okay. I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm a, 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 an academic who's following the story closely. Right. Um, but the, I mean, it is true that only the government can sort this problem out mm. um, because the problem has come about because of failed um, building safety regulation over many years. Um, since Grenfell Tower disaster, there have been four different secretaries of state um, and none of them have managed to fix the problem. We've now got Michael Gove and he has hopefully got some significant clout within government and will get the problem fixed. And indeed, Boris Johnson has said 
that Gove will fix the problem. So we're really having to look to the government because, in order for this this problem to be yeah, fixed. Yeah, because surely if, in fact, the, the regulations were so lax or the regulations were not really adhered to, then the responsibility for putting up dangerous cladding must rest with those who gave planning permission for it, mustn't it? Well, it's, it's, it's quite, a, a, on one hand, complex and on the other hand, very simple story. Um, there are two basic problems with this. One is that the building regulations themselves, which are government-produced regulations, uh, were, were, were not fit for purpose. Um, so some of these buildings have been built arguably in, in line with what the building regulations say, mm. but are still now found to be unsafe. Other buildings may have been put up not in accordance with the building regulations, and the problem there is the developers and the builders who just didn't build it right. Um, but either way, it's not the problem, it's not the, the fault of the people who are now being left um, stuck in these buildings and having to, to pick up the bills. Yes, and I guess the other side of the coin as well are people who live in buildings like this where the cladding has to either be taken down or they have to pay for new cladding to be put on, and an awful lot of the owners of those um, those flats and those dwellings are asking for the individuals who occupy the flats to pay for it right uh, so so the, the the way that these buildings are typically owned and i mean it's, it's complex but in a relatively simple case you have a freeholder who owns the entire building right. um, and then the individual units are sold to um, the people we call leaseholders the flat owners and under the law um, the the terms of their their contractual arrangements their leases will almost always mean that they are liable to pay the costs of this. So if we assume that a building is fixed, um, then almost always under the terms of their lease, the cost of that can be passed on to them. Now, the government has made some money available for this, um, but it's not made enough money available um, and it doesn't cover all of the problems that are emerging. Um, so the government's really got to step up and get this sorted. And I mean, what, what, what needs to happen is that the government needs to treat this as a public health emergency and to throw all its resources at it um, in a way that we've seen it respond um, to, to more other yes. recent events. Well, this, this is this the is thing, isn't it? I mean, now that the government has spent so much money on COVID and, and, and the, the recovery from that, it's hard for them to argue that they haven't got any money that they can spend on this because they can find it for lots of other things. Well, it's just got to be found because, you know, the, 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 these buildings have to be made safe. Um, there, and there is no other way of doing it. So whatever one might think about, you know, there are all these various arguments about should taxpayers be paying for this and so on. Um, there are ways of funding this that, that involve relatively minor cost to taxpayers. But the point is that whoever pays for it, I mean, this, the funding has got to come initially from the government um, because that is the only way that we're going to get these buildings sorted and made safe. Absolutely right. Professor Susan Bright, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. She's from New College at the University of Oxford. She's a supporter of the End Our Cladding Scandal. They've written to Michael Gove uh, to get him to do something about this because in the end, it's all about money and it's all about people who are without that kind of resource to actually fix up whatever it is that they have to do. In some cases, taking down cladding, in other cases, putting up new cladding. It's a very, very massive problem here because a lot of people are now living in dangerous situations. You might be one of them. Uh, if you're involved in this story, we'd love to hear yours. Uh, your story, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And time to say a very good morning because it is Tuesday. No, normally when I do this, I get the day wrong. So I'm, it is definitely Tuesday, isn't it? Because Laura Dobbs, Dodsworth is here and that means it is Tuesday, I think. It's Tuesday.
Tuesday because I'm here. Yes, That's welcome. That's how you know. Let me anchor you on the second day of the week. Yes, absolutely right. And I was reading your piece just last night, um, which is all about the nudge brigade, as we call them, the plan A, plan B situation. Tell us what you make of it all. Yeah, the winter plan isn't all bad. It's not all bad. Some some of the most draconian uh, sleep loss inducing schedules of the Coronavirus Act are rescinded. You know, uh. that's the ones to um, detain the potentially infectious and shut schools. So it's good. But the whole plan is absolutely rife with mm. nudges. Yeah. And nudges are behavioural science tricks designed to prod you and prime you and prepare you into acting like the model citizen, yes. the way that the government wants you to behave. So there's a few techniques that are used throughout this winter plan. And I thought it'd be helpful to kind of run through them mm. because the thing is, once you've seen the nudges, you can't unsee them. Right. Once you've seen the smoke and mirrors, you'll always see it. So they've used techniques like foot in the door, the leapfrog effect, mm. salience, confusion, incentivization, um, and reciprocation nudging. So should we go through some Let's of those? go through from the beginning, right. yes. Because okay. like, the one, I read your leapfrog thing and I wasn't quite sure what that meant, so I'm interested to know. Okay, well actually, um, a behavioural scientist mate of mine, Patrick Fagan, very clever, got his own independent consultancy and he's ex-Cambridge Analytica, he came up with that term. Okay. So I'm going to have to give him the credit for it. It's basically when a debate is kind of leapfrogged. Mm. So for instance, um, there was a lot of debate about whether 12 to 15 year olds would be able to give consent for their COVID vaccine yes. or not. What that does is get you all talking about the issue of consent yes. and then the end result which is that vaccination will be rolled out to 12 to 15 year olds is a fait accompli mm. it's a denouement it's yes. it's done it's so what by the, time the door it in happens, the face in other words you've talked about it for so long that you're kind of expecting it to happen you're mentally primed but not only that you've been talking about the mechanics of it not whether it's actually right or not mm. so it's leapfrogged you over your initial objections yes. by making you distracted and discuss something else, right. which was the issue of consent. Right. He's a clever guy, that one. Okay. Patrick Fagan. But clearly the government's behavioural scientists are very clever too. Yes, because so, it's interesting. It was only the other day, I think, I was talking to someone about SAGE and about the advisors of, to the government. And somebody said to me, when is it that they're going to be told, thanks very much indeed, we don't need you anymore? My belief on that one is that they've been there for quite a long time and they were there before COVID that we've been t being treated like this for quite a while, long before COVID ever came along. Yeah, well, it's worth important. It, it, you know, it's worth remembering that Spy B, who mm. reporting to Sage, um, do advise on a, a number of issues on the National Risk Register, not just COVID. Yeah. They didn't meet, I believe, between January and June of this year. Oh. They're not always as involved as you think. Mm. And actually, I think we should probably be assuming that more comes out of the behavioural insights team um, which is the nudge unit, which is part of the cabinet office, but also a separate company. And the behavioural scientists that are in different departments like the cabinet office, but also in Public Health England, as it was, yeah. and the NHS so and the other agencies. So who's in that, as far as you're aware? Is it people like Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and others? What, on Spy B? No, in the, 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 the behavioural unit you were talking about. Well, you can office. you can look it up online. The Behavioural Insights team um, is headed up by a guy called David Halpin, who okay. founded it under the Cameron government. And um, there's a number of people in that office and they have they have offices around the world now mm. actually lodged in other government departments. Mm. It's fascinating, it fascinating web of behavioral yeah. science um, advice. So we've got uh, the leapfrog effect. Then there's um, there's the foot in the door technique. Yeah. So we've got plan A and plan B. Mm. Now, I'd suggest 
that plan A is like training pants yeah. for plan B. Plan A is only there to get you used to plan B. Plan B is only what will happen if there's unsustainable pressure on the NHS. But of course, there's unsustainable pressure on the NHS every year. So consider yourself put on notice. I think this is this. what this means is the government wants to unleash plan B, which is the vaccine passports. Right. So this is the foot in the door. They get you used to plan A, they get you acclimatised to that idea, but only so they can bring in plan B. Of course they could be wrong, but I might not be. Let's see what happens. That's right. Another. I don't um, think anyone would make a bet that you would be wrong. Not by this stage, I'd no. have thought. Um, the other reason that you can suspect that plan B is a desired outcome is the government is consulting again on vaccine passports. Right. Now, they've already consulted and they had over 52,000 responses mm. last time. Yeah. And PACAC, part of the um, Cabinet Office, also consulted and they had 9,000 responses. So that's a lot of responses that to is. the last consultation. And we also know that they've introduced them already, have, have they not, in Scotland? Um, yes. And I'm not sure if they have already in Wales, but it's, it's imminent if it hasn't started yet. I think it's the vote today. I think it might be. Yeah. I think the vote's today. So if, if we gave all those responses last time, I can only assume we didn't give the right answers. Mm. So the government's consulting again. Yes. And I think this consultation is frankly absurd. I don't know if you've done it, Mike, but it's quite a frustrating one to respond to because the... Um, the design of the survey is such that you are forced into giving certain choices to elicit an answer they obviously want. Right. So, for instance, there are questions where there's no negative answer. Right. You basically can't say no to vaccine passports. Oh. There's an open text field. So what kind of questions? Um, I can't remember that one off the top of my head. It's about whether staff should be forced to have mandatory vaccine passports or not. Right. It's, it's about different examples when you would and wouldn't want staff to be and, and attendees to have mandatory vaccine passports or to have tests available. Right. It's not a very long survey, but what it doesn't do is give you the option to answer mm. fully in the negative if that's your position. Yes. So you ha I would still urge everybody to do it because you can put the answer you want oh. into the text box. But what that shows is there's an outcome in mind, yes. which supports my idea of plan A to plan B being foot in the door. And somebody has to come up with all this stuff, which is what disturbs me the most, because it means that they are actually attempting to mislead people and or make you go in a particular direction. And that takes quite a lot of work, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this. I mean, it's this... not happening by accident, in other words. Of course not. No, there's a lot of bias in this consultation. I'd say it's got the, the fingerprints of the behavioural scientists smudged all over mm. it. Um, we're also trapped in a Groundhog Day of modelling. So we've got through September, so we can comment on the doom mongering that came out of SAGE. Yes. They said that up to 7,000 people could be hospitalised per day yeah. during the month. It did go up to 1,000, I think, at the worst, but yeah. it's fallen, it's levelled off. Right. We never reach the worst case scenario again. The problem is, although it's presented as a worst case scenario, that worst case scenario is what makes the headlines and it what's, it's what sticks. Yes. And that in behavioural science is what's known as salience. Right. That's what sticks in your head. And so those big numbers fuel the policies, but they also justify them and they stay in your brain and they kind of haunt you. Right. And it means that people are constantly like being warned of something as well, you know, mm. so that you're constantly, I mean, like the, people have said that the petrol crisis, and I always believed that it was not a petrol shortage. It was created by people going to get petrol who didn't need to get petrol. And I think mm. we talked about this last week that you were saying that people have now been conditioned into behaving in a particular way because they think that something's going to run out and they don't really believe what the government tells them. If the government says don't panic, they panic. 
Well, I just think trust is going to be in tatters at the end mm. of the the whole management of this COVID epidemic. Yeah, we it feels sometimes like we're being we're being gamed. Um, yes. The other like thing softened about, up for something. Yeah. Well, we can come on to that in Christmas in a minute. But the, the other thing about this um, plan A to plan B is there's no um, quantifiable parameters. It's very fluid. It's very unspecified. We just know it's about unsustainable pressure on the NHS. Now, that creates confusion and stress. You don't know what it is that's going to get you from plan A to plan B. Yeah. What does confusion do? Well, it disarms you mm. and it would make you look more to the government for direction. Yes. So there's something about confusion which is in fact and it also primes you for the next directions which you're waiting for. It's another behavioural science tactic to increase compliance. Right, because we look at places like Denmark and Sweden now where they've done away completely with testing, they've done away with any kind of COVID restrictions of any kind. They're Mm. basically saying this is no longer a dangerous disease. And yet, we kind of aren't talking about it, I find, at the moment. You know, I know that you're talking about vaccine passports, but I mean, I haven't really heard much coming from the government about COVID. I mean, the last thing I heard was at the weekend when I was rather horrified to hear Sajid Javid saying um, that people are going to be fired from care homes if they're not vaccinated. It's just, I think that's just so awful. How can you know, they do these, that? the people that we were encouraged to clap for, the people that worked throughout the pandemic in the most dangerous yeah. of settings would now be sacked. If, well, they're not saying they're going to sack them from the NHS, though. You're saying they're going to sack them from care homes. They're from all, care homes. Some of them are going to work in the NHS where that doesn't apply. But it are. might but it might do because that's also threatened. Mm. Yeah. Um, another example of behavioural science in the winter plan is the use of rewards and punishments. Yeah. So the double vaccinated don't need PCR tests anymore for travel, mm. which is obviously a massive hassle and really expensive. Yes. So that kind of makes sense. You think, well, yeah, if you've been vaccinated, why do you have to go through this rigmarole? Right. But what about people who have natural immunity mm. because they've had prior infection? The fact that they're not included shows that this is just a classic nudge. It's an incentive to get you vaccinated. Yeah. But as much as it offers a reward for the vaccinated, it's also a punishment for the unvaccinated. For the unvaccinated yes. Yeah, so it's trying to nudge you into a certain sort of behaviour, but those who've got prior immunity should be treated yeah. the same as the I vaccinated. I mean, funnily enough, I was on a bus this morning because I put my car in to have a couple of things done to it, and there was an announcement. I haven't been on a bus for a while, mm. and it said you are required to wear a mask while travelling on uh, any TFL-operated service. Now, that's not what actually the law says. The law mm. says... You can wear a mask if you wish, but you don't have to. That's not what the uh, the announcement said. The announcement said you're required to wear a mask. I wasn't wearing one, yeah. and, and not everybody was either. But I wonder why they do that. Well, it's deliberate confusion, isn't it? Well, it's also kind of, it's worse than nudge, really. It's trying to shame you almost into doing it, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it is. Of course, only COVIDiots would be silly enough to have taken off their masks. Yeah, yeah you must uh, be some kind of maniac yeah, you don't trying care, to kill people. You don't care about people. No. I mean, luckily, most people don't seem to have gone in that direction. But that's Mm. clearly what the aim is. Yeah, I think we've reached a kind of a tipping point. Mm. A lot of people aren't wearing masks now. And I think it would be hard to persuade people that it's a good idea to do it again. But we'll we'll have to see because all these measures are held in plan B, aren't they? A bit like a sword of Damocles. Will they, won't they? Will Will these awful mandations come back? And... The idea is that maybe vaccine passports would be presented as the alternative to right. masks or lockdowns or well, anything right. if we're just, even we're just good, the good boys know, and girls. Even though the things that we know are that vaccine passports are worthless because either one, the vaccines work, therefore you are protected, and two, mm. uh, they don't work, in which case you're not protected. So what's the point? And secondly, 
um, to go back to the 12 to 15 year old uh, vaccination program. I don't believe that's going terribly well. Uh, I was watching um, um, a show the other night in which they said the take up for 16 and 17 year olds is not very high either. I think it's something like 50 to 60 percent, mm. which is lower than they wanted. So uh, and I haven't yet heard from my son's school as to what they're doing about masks and the testing, because they said they were going to review the testing procedure mm. at the end of September. It's now October. I haven't heard anything. Well, I don't think there'd be any justification for it now. We, we now know it's got an infection fatality rate of 0.096%. Mm. It seems crazy to bring in a medical ID status certificate, masks and tests for something which has the same infection fatality rate as a flu. Yeah. It, it, would be, it would be strange now to bring these measures back. And yet there does seem to be this push still towards the COVID passports. And there's another area of confusion around them, which I think could reflect confusion in government or could be designed to confuse us so we don't know which way is up. You know, within a week we had uh, Sajid Javid say there's no evidence for vaccine passports um, and scrap them but not rule them out for pubs. And we had Boris Johnson say they're sensible but not offer any Mm. evidence. And there's a feeling, you know, does the left hand not know what the right hand is doing? Or is there a big behavioural science brain in between? Or is it just all between? about confusing? Because I must admit, when we spoke to somebody yesterday about the new travel plans, because mm. October the 4th was the day when the travel restrictions kind of changed, I completely had no clue where we even were anymore. You know, and I'm supposed to be on top of these things, and I literally couldn't tell you until yeah. we spoke to our guest yesterday what it was actually, what, it, what was going to change and what it was going to yeah. mean. And I think an awful lot of people have no clue. But this is what I find interesting about why... We're not hearing about it as much because I also wonder whether that's a bit deliberate. You know, we're hearing Tory party conference. Um, you know, we heard from Rishi Sunak yesterday who was talking about, you know, having to pay the price of, of all of the public money that's been spent. Um, we're going to have Priti Patel today talking probably about the Insulate Britain people and what she's going to do to make it pretty difficult for them to continue to demonstrate. We've heard from Sajid Javid um, that he's going to imp- improve the NHS. Nobody's really talking about COVID anymore. Well, it'd be lovely if we could stop talking about it and for vaccine passports, etc., to all go away. Yeah. I mean, it, it does look from the data like this is over, but I, I'm going to stay in my lane. That's mm. not my lane to talk about that. And you were talking about it yesterday in Manchester, right? Yeah, I went up so to So what the, happened there? Yeah, I went up to the Conservative conference to give a talk about vaccine passports at a fringe event. Actually, funny story. Um, it was a great event. Um, I was on a panel with Sir Graham Brady, MP, mm. Dr Carl Hennehan and Alan Miller, who founded the Nighttime yes. Industry Associations. And all we were, regulars on this, on this radio station. All regulars, all great people. Yeah. Uh, and, and me, and we were talking about whether vaccine passports are conservative. Mm. Now, this is new for me. It's my first time at a political conference, and I think of myself as quite apolitical, but I found I had quite a lot to say on the subject. Mm. So, great event, and it should have been in the Conservative Conference programme, and I found out as we went in that apparently it had been dropped from the programme. Oh, really? Yeah, our event wasn't listed, but still... Are you the Rosie Duffield of the Conservative Party? <laughs> well, I, I'm definitely... I'm not in the Conservative <laughs> not Party, so... Yeah, it was a bit of a strange one. The event organisers yeah. didn't quite know what to make about that, but it was still really well attended and, you know, great perspectives on mm. it. Um, and Graham Brady's always said that he would vote against them, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think the government expected the level of opposition they've had mm. from um, the leisure industry, from people writing to their MPs and from MPs themselves. Mm. This was not 
this was a lot more unpopular than they thought. But I tell you what, the fact that only 55% of 16 to 17 year olds have been vaccinated does make me fear that they might want to unleash plan B. Yeah. Because the vaccine passport is a nudge. You know, we're talking about the nudges in the wind's plan. The vaccine passport is the nudge. It's yeah. to encourage uptake of the vaccine. It's about making a choice, you know, get vaccinated and then you can access all these products and services and any employment you want and lecture halls mm. and, and easy travel or don't get vaccinated yeah. and don't access those things. It's a pretty crappy choice, but it is it is a choice and it is designed to push you towards yes. being vaccinated because it just makes life easier. But as time goes on, I think, more and more people are getting the idea that actually that's exactly what they're trying to do and so they're not following the instructions and they're not going to do it. And also I've seen mm. evidence from different parts of the country that where they've been asked to sort of provide um, vaccine passport effectively for people to go to something, mm. the people actually running the event are not exactly being very enthusiastic about doing it. So they're not really checking everybody. And I think without mm. their compliance, if you like, it's an impossibility anyway. Absolutely. And you know, that's why I wanted to talk about it today, because if, if you show people, if you show people the kind of um, tricks that magicians are, are dazzling you with, once right. you've seen the trick, you, you know to look straight past it and up right. the magician's sleeve. Yes. So it's good to call it out. Be aware. People should know. We should be getting a vaccine because of the medical benefits mm. it offers us, not because it's a way to access freedoms. No. And the fact is, there are people who will be put off, like you say, and there are also people who've made a rational decision to have it, or people that won't because of cultural reasons or religious reasons or yeah. mistrust and those people will fall off the edge of society mm. if we introduce vaccine passports and so my main uh, message to the conservative conference was if they're about leveling up there's no way that something like vaccine passports helps us level up because people fall off the edge of society and it's the most disadvantaged and it's people from minority yeah. ethnic groups and that's just not right no the thing that surprises me the most is is what's happening in america and i was talking to somebody about this yesterday how many people there have fallen for this and, and new york apparently in particular mm. uh, which is a place i, I know well um has completely gone vaccine passport mad and apparently people are getting fired if they haven't been vaccinated yeah. you're not allowed into restaurants i mean they're i mean they've really been quite strict about it isn't it interesting yeah i mean new york Home used to be one of the most dangerous and exciting cities in the world when i lived there in the 80s you literally didn't know if you're gonna get shot dead on the way to work i mean it was yeah. that exciting and i was in my 20s so i didn't yeah. care you know but now it's like gone completely the other way I know. Do you know, it really kind of puts me off going. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure I well, want you know, to I'm go going to like Chris, I'm, Christmas, I'm going to spend at my um, sister's place in Connecticut. And we were talking about, oh, should we go into New York? And I was like, I'm not even sure I want to go. Mm. I'm not even sure. And it used to be my second favourite city in the world. And I'm not even sure I want to go and visit. I, well, I know how you feel. Like, you know, I've always felt I wouldn't want to go to Saudi Arabia because I don't want to go to a country where women couldn't vote or drive. Right. I don't really find that appealing. Not really. I, I think the way they treat women is very off-putting. I don't want to go to a country equally that treats freedom lightly. Yeah. I think there's part of me that wouldn't feel safe or that it's a pleasurable place to mm. go on holiday. I mean, it's put me right off Canada, yeah. Australia, New York. Well, don't worry, you can't California. go to Australia anyway. Can't go to Australia anyway. They, they wouldn't have me, would mm. they? Uh, they won't even have their own citizens who are abroad. So, yeah, it, it's it's not good for the brand mm. of a place, no. is it? So you mentioned Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Once they once there was this kind of joke that Michael Gove was the minister for Christmas, I thought, uh-oh. Yeah. And um, Boris Johnson talked about how he didn't want to have to cancel Christmas again. Now, the whole Saving Christmas message last year originated with the Behavioural mm. Insights yes. people. It's messaging that they brought back from Slovakia when they visited to see how they were doing mass testing out there. 
and they thought it's really great you know you get people behind a cause come on we're all in this together we're going to save Christmas yeah. actually what it did was really mess with people's heads it was like psychological yes. torture Christmas is our huge cultural and mm. religious and family event and the idea of it being cancelled was just it was just awful yeah. and it divided families. And so many people spent Christmas alone as a result as well. So sad, right? so sad. And so, I mean, I think we're in this really, really strange Groundhog Day mm. with Christmas. But it, the idea of talking about cancelling Christmas would have been completely unthinkable yeah. two years ago. And now we're just saying, oh, yeah, we don't want to cancel Christmas again. There's something about it that's a little bit... It's a little bit nudgy. Yes. So although the reasons to cancel Christmas this year are ostensibly about supply chains, what it does is also put into your mind the COVID restrictions right. of last year. There's something about being good boys and girls. Mm. Like, do it told yeah. so that Santa comes. Yeah. More worryingly, I think we need to worry about who's drafting our New Year's resolutions because all this Christmas stuff is kind of about... It's kind of linked in with green targets mm. as well. I'm not, not quite sure what's going on there, but all this stuff about saving Christmas is a bit just feels a little bit a little bit nudgy yes it really does because we're also hearing boris saying oh this christmas will be a lot better than last christmas don't worry about that but all this nonsense about supply chains uh, and going running short of stuff i just think it's rubbish i just don't buy any of it i don't know anyone that has walked into a shop anywhere in britain and not been able to buy whatever they wanted i just I, don't i couldn't buy a chicken last weekend a chicken a chicken yeah. I could have sold you a chicken. I had a spare one in the freezer. <laughs> well, I remember the next time we'll next be doing black market exchanges yeah, under absolutely. the desk at Talk Radio. That's where it'll be. Buying chickens. Can I get my turkey Life and my pigs? During and wartime. Pigs and blankets here too. <laughs> well, I make my own, you see. That's the other thing you can do, which is what I say to people. Buy some sausages, buy some bacon, wrap it round, put it in the oven, bob's your uncle or not. I thought you meant make your own chickens. Well you could grab well, you'd have your own chickens. I used to keep chickens when I was a student. Uh, maybe, maybe that's how it's all going to go. Do you know what? One of them, I'm just going to very quickly tell you this because we're running late. One of them, we thought one of them stopped laying eggs and we killed it and ate it. Well, and we is... had to import a guy in to karate chop its neck because none of us wanted to do it. Aww. And then we found all the eggs. They've been laying them somewhere else. Oh, no. Oh, no. Tasted Wait. great, though. Oh. To say. Anyway, that's enough chicken for today. Um, if you've got chicken and you've got extra chicken, Laura Dodsworth's looking for one. Uh, lovely to see you. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. <laughs> sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.